Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Francine Foss, Anish Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Foss is a professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is associate professor of surgical oncology and director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. And Dr. Gore is director of hematological malignancies at Smilo. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about bladder cancer with Dr. Patrick Kenny. Dr. Kenny is Assistant Professor of Urology at Yale School of Medicine, and here's Dr. Anise Chagpar. Patrick, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about bladder cancer? It's certainly not one of those cancers that's really hot and sexy that all of us talk about. That's right. Um, despite that, bladder cancer really does have a very significant impact um, on the patients that suffer from it and on the healthcare system in general. It's on a per patient basis, it's the most expensive uh, cancer that we treat. Um, although uh, we don't often think of it when we think of cancer, it's the sixth most common cancer uh, diagnosed in the United States. We, in 2015, we estimate about 75,000 patients are going to be diagnosed with bladder cancer in the United States alone. Wow. So there's a, a couple of key points there, I think. First is, I never knew that it was the most expensive cancer that yeah. we treat. So why is that? Well, I mean, I think it's for a few reasons. One is that there are so many people who are bladder cancer survivors, okay? There's about a half a million people in the United States who at one point in their life were diagnosed with bladder cancer. So many of them still have their bladder in place, and they need surveillance. And the ways we look for recurrence of bladder cancer, one of them is to do what's called a cystoscopy. And that's where we put a scope into their bladder. And we have to do it fairly frequently, and it's not cheap. Hmm. Okay. And it's the sixth most common cancer diagnosed in the United States. That's right. Wow. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you diagnose bladder cancer to begin with. I mean... I'm sure that most people sitting at home are thinking, I know how to get a mammogram to detect breast cancer early. I right. know how to get a colonoscopy to detect colon cancer early. I know not to smoke so that I hopefully reduce my chances of getting lung cancer. But bladder cancer isn't one that we often think about. So how, how do we find it? And is there anything that we can do to prevent it? Absolutely. Um, so I think the, to answer your first question, how do we find it? Most patients come in with symptoms. Unlike, you know, often we hear about patients with colon cancer or breast cancer being diagnosed by screening or even prostate cancer. But bladder cancer, we don't have an effective screening exam. So even patients who are high risk that we know are high risk based on certain exposures like smoking, um, we don't have an effective screening protocol for them. So most patients come in with symptoms. And the symptoms that, that, are, that can be typical of bladder cancer are blood in the urine um, or uh, voiding symptoms, that uh, urinary urgency or frequency. So wait a minute. Most people, when they get a little bit of blood in their urine, the first thing they're thinking about is kidney stones, not bladder cancer. And when or they infection. get a little bit of urgency, they're thinking, man, maybe I've got a big prostate. They don't think 
bladder cancer. That's right. And the first thought necessarily shouldn't be that bladder cancer because most of the people aren't going to have it. But anybody who has blood in the urine, either blood that they can see when they urinate or blood that's in their urine uh, visible only with a microscope, needs to have an evaluation to make sure that they don't have bladder cancer. One of the things that's unfortunate is that women tend to present a bit later than men. Although bladder cancer is much more common in men, women tend to present later. And it may be that their blood that they have in their urine is thought to be something else. Mm -hmm. They may be more commonly treated for perhaps for urinary tract infection when it may be something else such as bladder cancer. So if you have blood in your urine, whether you're a man or a woman, whether it is you can see it or whether it's picked up on a urine test, you should have that checked out. Absolutely. Every time without fail. And even if you have urgency, frequency, voiding symptoms as well? Well, that's a difficult thing because the majority of those patients in, in the absence of blood in the urine are going to have another cause. So we don't routinely check for bladder cancer in those patients. But for people who have those symptoms and who are treated for other causes and those symptoms persist, then we may go down the path of looking for something else like bladder cancer as a cause. Okay, so when you say, and then we'll check for it, what exactly is check for it entail? So that's a great question. So um, there are basically two ways we use uh, that are kind of standard ways of diagnosing bladder cancer. One is a simple urine test, and that is called a urine cytology. And what that is is we take the urine um, and it gets looked at under a microscope, and we look at the cells in the urine. And if there are what appear to be cancer cells in the urine, then that gets further worked up. The way we have of visualizing the bladder, unfortunately, CAT scan, ultrasound, MRI, PET scan, none of them are good at, at imaging the bladder. The best way we have is something called cystoscopy. And again, that's where we put a very small camera into the bladder. And so, so to get back to the first test, because the first test sounds a lot easier and probably a lot more pleasant. Um, but if you're just looking at people's urine for cancer cells, urine comes from kidneys and then goes through the ureters and then goes into the bladder and then comes out the urethra. If you're just looking for cancer cells in the urine, how do you know that those are coming from the bladder? How, how do you know that it's not coming from somewhere else along that genitourinary tract? Well, that's a great point. And if someone does have cancer cells in the urine, we're, we always check to make sure that the ureters, the tubes that connect the kidney to the bladder, and the kidneys are also uh, fine. We, we make sure we look at them as well with a CAT scan typically. Okay. So you've mentioned cystoscopy now a couple of times. First, as a means of surveillance for people who have had bladder cancer. And second, as a way for actually visualizing the bladder to see whether there's an abnormality there uh, and diagnose bladder cancer. So take us through what cystoscopy is like. And are there any novel kind of ways that are making this a little bit more pleasant or more effective? Uh, absolutely, there are. You know, I think cystoscopy tends to be a big source of um, uh, 
fear or discomfort or the thought of it tends to be actually much worse than the actual uh, much worse than the actual experience. Patrick, you're talking about taking a tiny tube and putting it up somebody's urethra and looking inside their bladder. Absolutely. We use uh, some numbing medicine that it, it's not people generally don't feel pain. They may feel some pressure or discomfort. Um, it's a very fast procedure. We do it every day in the office and patients tolerate it really, really well. So it's done in the office, not in an operating room? Well, screening or surveillance cystoscopy is done in the office. If Uh we know that someone has a bladder tumor, then we'll take them to the operating room and under anesthesia, we'll be able to biopsy it or remove it. Hmm. But in the office, people do great. It's it's not nearly as as uncomfortable as, as you would think. Okay, we'll take your word for it. But, you know, you asked about advances in cystoscopy, and traditionally we use what's called white light cystoscopy, and that's where the light source has the full spectrum of white light. There's a new, uh, several new methods of doing cystoscopy that may improve bladder cancer detection. Um, the one we're using currently at Yale is called blue light cystoscopy. It's very interesting. It's not done in the office. It's only done in the operating room. Um, an imaging agent is administered into the bladder before the procedure, and it's left in for about an hour or so. And in the operating room, that agent is removed. It's just liquid. And then the patients uh, have a traditional white light cystoscopy. And there's a switch on the scope, which we can flip, that then bathes the bladder in, in blue light, in the blue wavelength. Rapidly dividing cells are affected by that imaging agent we put in cells like cancer cells and those cells fluoresce red bright red Mm. and what's outstanding about this technology is it's been shown to increase bladder cancer detection to reduce the risk of recurrence and to delay recurrences when they do happen so um, it's been a uh, it's a a great addition to our armamentarium Um, it's can be an expensive technology and that expense may have limited its uptake what I mean is there are a lot of facilities or a lot of hospitals that have not um, adopted this technology because the cost may be prohibitive. We've been very fortunate at Yale that we've been able to um, offer this technology to our patients. Yeah, it sounds like a, a great kind of device that would help you to see cancers if this if they fluoresce red and you can't see that as well under white light as you can under blue light. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And um, certain cancers, something there's something called CIS, which stands for carcinoma in situ. And in bladder cancer, um, that's a, a can be a very aggressive type of cancer. And blue light cystoscopy is, in general, is much better at detecting CIS than white light. So... Wait a second. Most carcinoma in situs that we talk about in other parts of the body are are precancers. They're less in aggressive. Not are you telling me that bladder is different? Bladder is very different. So in other organs, CIS or carcinoma in situ, many people think is actually a misnomer that it's not really cancer. In bladder, it's a it's a significant cancer. It's high risk um, when it's combined with a papillary tumor. It, uh, the, the two potentially are synergistic with worse outcomes than either one would be associated with alone. Hmm. So, so this blue light cystoscopy can pick this up better than white light cystoscopy. So with regards to the cost, is that something that insurance covers? 
Well, there's um, there's a lot of work being done on that right now. Um, there's a group called uh, BCAN or the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network. It's a essentially a patient-based group. They've done some work uh, making a lobbying effort trying to have insurers uh, reimburse for this. There are two components to the cost. One is actually buying the equipment. The second is is the imaging agent. The imaging agent right now is not covered uh, by Medicare, and that cost is absorbed by the institution that that does the procedure. So that's very generous of Yale. It is. I mean, I think it's, it's a testament to, uh, I think, a, a very dedicated bladder cancer program and where we're really doing uh making every effort to provide the best possible outcomes and the best possible diagnostics for our patients. Mm. I think when you look at the data and we realize that although the incidence of bladder cancer may be starting to decline, if you look at the death rates over the past 10 years, they're unchanged. Mm. If you look at the five-year survival from 1975 and you compare it to 30 years later, it's maybe 5 or 6% better. This is during the time period of extraordinary advances in cancer care. But bladder, we've had a hard time making an impact. So if we can add better diagnostics, better treatments, more effective treatments, maybe we can start to inch those numbers down. So that brings me to another point. When you were talking about this blue light cystoscopy, it made sense to me that it improves detection. But you also said that it reduces recurrence. How does it do that? Well, some of that is probably because um, there are patients who have multiple tumors in their bladder. And we may be better with blue light at detecting multiple tumors. So in uh, what's called the registration trial, there were um, for this, for this uh, device – there were um, a substantial amount of tumors that were diagnosed um, only with blue light cystoscopy and not with white light. And this led to about a seven-month, seven to nine-month uh, reduction in the time to recurrence. That is awesome. Well, we have to take a short break for a medical minute, but please stay tuned to learn more about bladder cancer with my guest, Dr. Patrick Kenny. This year, over 200,000 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven, to test innovative new treatments for lung cancer. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial at Yale aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Patrick Kenny. We're talking about new advances in bladder cancer treatment and diagnosis. And right before the break, we were talking about this new technique of blue light cystoscopy. Um, and it's so unfortunate that this show is on radio and not on TV because uh, Dr. Kenny showed me these pictures, which would blow your mind, uh, where you can really see these red lesions against a blue light background that you really can't see with white light. So Patrick, I want to pick up from there so you can see these lesions. How do you make a diagnosis of bladder cancer? So the diagnosis is a, patholo- is a pathologic one, meaning that we do biopsies um, or we do, uh, you know, we scrape out the tumor and then it gets sent to the pathologist. I think it's really important to know that uh, the the pathologist plays a really integral role in the diagnosis. And it's important, I think, you know, to have as good of a pathologist as you possibly can. Um, what, and then the pathologist makes a diagnosis and they tell us what the, uh, they can give us some information about what's called staging. So is the cancer superficial or does it invade into the wall of the bladder? And if it invades into the wall of the bladder, does it go into the muscle layer of the bladder? And those are all really important because the treatments vary pretty dramatically. Okay, so let's talk about that. Suppose it's just superficial, then what? Well, you know, you bring up an interesting word, and it's in my field, it's a very loaded word. We actually don't use the word superficial anymore. Okay. Because what we say is non-muscle invasive. And um, the reason for that is because there are some cancers that are non-muscle invasive, but are still invasive. And they can be very high-risk cancers. And for instance, there's something called a T1 bladder cancer. Those are bladder cancers that invade into the bladder wall but haven't yet gotten into the muscle. It may be semantics, but when we say superficial, they tend to get lumped in with some of the less aggressive non-muscle invasive bladder cancers. And it's really important that we keep them separate. So if you have a cancer that hasn't gotten into the muscle, that's presumably better, right? That's, that's absolutely right. I mean, the idea is that for those cancers, we have a good chance at being able to spare the patient's bladder. The most common treatment is to scrape out the tumor, what we call a TURBT, or transurethral resection of the bladder tumor. And we do that in the operating room. It's a procedure that's done through the urethra without an incision. And after that, after the patient has recovered, they're generally treated with medication into their bladder, depending on the risk factors of the bladder tumor. What kind of medication? The most common for patients who have uh, what's called high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer or intermediate risk is to use something called BCG. It's an, it's an attenuated uh, mycobacterium, kind of like tuberculosis. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So... Uh, So what it sounds like is you're scraping out a bladder tumor uh, with something that sounds a lot like the same thing that you use with scraping out a prostate uh, through the urethra, and then you're putting in something that's like TB into their bladder? Yep, we do that. But we, we wait a period of time to let the bladder heal. And then the idea is that this, uh, this bug causes a really intense immune response. And we're really harnessing the power of the patient's immune system to fight the cancer. And it's associated with a reduction in the risk of recurrence. 
And depending on how it's administered and, and depending on whose data you believe, it's also uh, associated with a reduction in the risk of progression. Hmm. So do they get TB? No. You can There are rare cases where patients can get infections from the BCG, but patients do not get TB from it. And they don't lose their hair and they don't get sick like other kinds of chemotherapy. No, and it's not given through the IV. It's not like chemotherapy. There are chemotherapy agents we can use, but we believe that BCG is the most effective treatment we have. And is that just a one-time thing or is that an every-day-for-a-while thing? It would, it would be great for patients if it was a one-time thing, but it's not. Um, the initial treatment is once a week for six weeks. And then depending on their response, and hopefully they have a good one, then they'll get what's called maintenance therapy for two, even up to three years after that initial treatment. What's maintenance therapy? Well, that's where they come back in uh, several times and have the BCG back into their bladder once a week for three weeks. And we do that, tend to do that at the three-month mark, at the six-month mark, and then every six months thereafter, as long as they remain cancer-free. Okay, so how do you know whether somebody's responding to the BCG or not? So they need cystoscopies, and that's the procedure we talked about before. And we also check a urine cytology. So patients, particularly if they have high-risk uh, bladder cancer that's not invading the muscle, they need very close follow-up. So they come into the office every three months to get uh, a cystoscopy in the office. For the rest of their lives? Well, it depends. There's some, um, you know, there's... Certainly, we can decrease, if someone remains without evidence of recurrence, we can decrease that frequency over time. Okay. That sounds pretty intense. It is. Uh, I'm almost hesitant to ask how you treat muscle-invasive bladder cancer. Well, well muscle-invasive bladder cancer is, um, as you're implying, is a, is a very challenging situation. It's difficult for patients because the treatment itself is so aggressive. The... Um, the traditional treatment for muscle-invasive bladder cancer is a surgical one. It's called radical cystectomy. In men, that means removal of the bladder and the prostate. And in women, that's removal of the bladder, the uterus, the fallopian tubes, and in some cases, a portion of the vagina. We'll also, we also remove the urethra in some cases. So it can be a very uh, substantial operation that has pretty significant impact on people's um, quality of life or their, at least their, their body image, um, it's a big change. The good news is, is that most patients do very, very well with it and adjust very quickly. So if you take out somebody's bladder, does that mean that they're wearing a pouch on the side of their abdomen where they collect urine? It can, and that's uh, what's called a conduit where we take a, a small portion of their small intestine and use that to get the urine out of their belly. But um, we also do procedures called neobladders or what's called an orthotopic diversion. And what that means is that we take uh, some small intestine and we fashion it into, a, uh, into a, what acts as a new bladder that gets attached to the patient's urethra and they're able to urinate in a more normal fashion. Now, I think that word neobladder is probably not the best term because it's different. They don't have the same sensation that they need to urinate. 
it doesn't act exactly as their old bladder did. But for certain patients, it can be a really great option where they're able to have no external appliance, nothing visible on the outside that makes it apparent that they have had major bladder surgery, and they can urinate out their urethra as they've done their whole life. Yeah, it still sounds like such a major operation. You know, it it reminds me when you talk about radical cystectomies and all of the adjacent organs that you take out um, of operations that we did years ago on the breast uh, where we did radical mastectomies only to find later that maybe all of that wasn't really necessary. Yeah, I mean, I think going back to Halstead in the late 1800s, this idea of radical surgery, taking cancer out by the roots was, um, you know, a a kind of a a very fundamental or foundational idea in cancer surgery. Over time, we've been able to select patients who might not need such radical surgery. For instance, it used to be standard that part of the vagina was removed in every woman who had their bladder removed for cancer. Now we only do that in a percentage of patients. There also are descriptions of preserving the prostate. That's very controversial, and it's not something I make part of my practice. There are descriptions as well of preserving the uterus and uh, the ovaries and fallopian tubes. The concerns about that is though those patients may have a chance, a higher chance, of the cancer appearing in those organs later. Mm. I think a really important thing is that over time, because of better anatomy knowledge, better surgical technique, we've been able to preserve some structures that you might not always think about, like nerves. There are really important nerves that run near the prostate and near the bladder. Uh, In men, for instance, that impact their erectile function. One of the consequences of radical pelvic surgery in men can be that their erections after surgery aren't the same as they were before, and many men have aren't able to achieve an erection at all. But with good nerve sparing, inappropriately selected men were able to achieve uh, good functional outcomes. Yeah. So talk a little bit about survivorship. I mean, one of the things that you said was that we now see a lot of bladder cancer survivors. But as you describe the operation, albeit with nerve sparing and and improved surgical technique, it still sounds like there would be so many issues that affect quality of life for these patients. You know, I think the great news is that people's quality of life really is quite high after having their bladder removed. Many of these patients before surgery have blood in their urine. That can be a really vexing problem. Many patients have significant bladder symptoms. They're not able to sleep at night because they're getting up so frequently to urinate. Patients who have such severe symptoms oftentimes notice an improved quality of life after surgery, Hmm. even if they have uh, an external appliance. I have patients with an external appliance, what we call a conduit, who participate in every activity that they used to participate in, who are physically fit, people who run races, people who swim, um, who participate in any activity you could imagine. Hmm. So quality of life after bladder surgery can be very, very good. 
That's good to know, because I think that for a lot of people thinking about the consequences and the sequelae of major operations like this may be a lot more frightening and a lot more vexing than actually what they go through. I think that's true, and I think that's a problem that we actually deal with on a regular basis, especially when people have um, what we call non-muscle invasive bladder cancer that hasn't responded to treatment, you know, the the BCG or Mm -hmm. other treatments into the bladder. Many of those patients are very reluctant to proceed to the next step of having their bladder removed. One thing that's great is when patients can get together and share experiences. We're working on uh, a um, bladder cancer support group. Um, The Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network has a lot of support uh, networks in place for patients. And I think when we can get that point across to patients that they're going to do well and have a good quality of life, I think it's easier for them to make that decision, that potentially life-saving decision to have their bladder out. Yeah. But still, I think that a lot of patients would rather not ever get bladder cancer uh, and have to deal with these issues. So let's talk a little bit about risk factors. And are there risk factors that people can do something about that would reduce their risk of getting bladder cancer? Absolutely. I think the most important risk factor we know of is smoking. I mean, half of bladder cancer uh, cases are directly attributable attributable to smoking. Um, And uh, we know that if people quit smoking after a period of time, their bladder cancer risk will decline to the same as the general population of Hmm. non-smokers. I cannot emphasize enough how important it is for patients to stop smoking. There are other risk factors as well, occupations. So there are people who are exposed uh, to chemicals at work, dyes or printing inks, um, and those put them at risk. There are other occupations, um, diesel mechanics. There's some data to, to say that even that hairdressers who work with hair dye may be at higher risk of bladder cancer. So I think people need to protect themselves at work to avoid exposures and certainly to stop smoking. Dr. Patrick Kenny is Assistant Professor of Urology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program. And we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.